Good morning, church. Let's pray. Lord, you've begun a, a work. Uh, when we came to that place in our lives where we said yes to Jesus and uh, surrendered our lives, our wills, our futures, our everything, um, that was the, the beginning of sorts of you authoring our lives. We're living epistles. You're writing them, and you're going to complete it. You're going to finish the letter. And so, Lord, as we uh, have our time to just kind of sit and have your word preached and taught and to have it flow into us, we pray that it would uh, have its desired effect shaping us and conforming us into the image of Christ. So speak to us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul the Apostle is in prison in Rome as he writes this letter to the Colossians. And as far as we know, Paul never went to Colossae. Um, he, uh, the church was actually planted in Colossae after a guy from Colossae named Epaphras visited Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus doing ministry for about three years or so. It was, uh, most people think that was the longest stop on his three different missionary journeys was Ephesus. So it was a very fruitful ministry there. But anyway, Epaphras goes to Ephesus, hears Paul preach, his life is changed, gives his life to Jesus, goes back to Colossae, and essentially uh, starts the church there. So time goes on, and now there's some people in the Colossae church, which has grown, and there's people in there who are promoting some sort of strange ideas about godliness and holiness and, and what the Christian life actually is and that kind of thing. And at the center of these ideas was the teaching that, you know, Jesus wasn't really enough. There's more to the story. And so, you know, we need to keep the Old Testament rituals and ceremonies. There's secret power embedded in those things. And we need to seek new revelations and angelic visions because there will be new insights into the realm of eternity through those things. And we need to pursue spirituality via asceticism. That is the denying of the body, being harsh to the body, denying of the body of pleasures and so on. And in these different ways, that's how you'll get close to God and you'll find the depths of spiritual wisdom and so on. Epaphras was troubled by all of this at his church in Colossae. So he decided to go to Rome where he knew Paul was in prison and talk to Paul about it. And so Colossians is Paul's letter addressing the things that Epaphras told him about. So Paul was no stranger to dealing with false teachers and false teaching. And false teachers were right from the get-go present 
uh, from the birthing of the church, Paul was very, very aware that as the gospel spread and people came to Jesus, Satan was a motivated adversary who would do whatever he could to derail the progress of the kingdom. So, for instance, Paul called a meeting of the church leaders at Ephesus. And this would be the last time that he would see them, by the way. It was a meeting. You can read about it in Acts chapter 20. It would end with all of them, all the church leaders and Paul. They're on the beach. They're on their knees. They're praying. They're weeping. They're sad that they're not going to see Paul again until heaven. But listen to what Paul tells them. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So Paul says, I know that as soon as I leave and am off the scene, wolves, right? They're circling right now. And as soon as I'm gone, they're going to come in. And there's people in your church right now that are going to be swayed by these people and they're going to buy into the teaching and they're going to start to gather people around their teaching and pull people away from the truth. These people would claim to be Christians, claim to be on the same team as Paul, spreading the same message as Paul. That's what people always do. Paul said this in, again, same issue, 2 Corinthians eleven twelve. What I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So I'm working to undermine those guys who are saying that they're on the same team as me. Because they're not. They're liars. They're false teachers. They're claiming to have affinity with me. They're claiming to be Christians. They say they just want unity and all of that. Paul goes on to say, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen: such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So listen, church, you've got to wake up to this. And false teaching and false teachers is, are out there in abundance. In abundance. Satan's methodology has not changed over the years. He continues to introduce false ideas among the true. Counterfeit with the real. Pam and I visited New York, oh, I don't know how many years ago. We went as chaperones on our school's senior trip. 
and uh, our son, was it Luke? I think it was, it was Luke's senior trip. And, and anyway, we were in New York for a week with the seniors. And one of the things about New York is there's about 10 street vendors that are selling knockoff items, you know, 10 for every genuine thing. So you can buy knockoff perfume and cologne and tennis shoes. And a popular knockoff item in New York was the knockoff Rolex watch. They called it the Folex. <laughs> and for about 15 bucks, you can get a watch that from a distance, it looks like an actual Rolex. Now you get close up and you're like, uh, that's a Folex, right? You can, you can see it when you get, and it doesn't keep good time. It's not worth the 15 bucks that, that you paid for it. And yet people would buy those things by the dozens. And so these fake Rolexes, these Folexes, are big sellers for one reason. Real Rolexes exist. If there weren't real ones somewhere, there wouldn't be a market for these faux ones. So these knockoffs, they owe their very existence to the public's desire for the original. Paul, and of course Jesus before him, warned believers that there would be no shortage of false prophets in the world with false teachings. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are wolves in sheep's clothing presenting a faux gospel. Charlatans exist because the real thing exists. Forgeries are not made from forgeries. Forgeries are made from the true. And so ironically, I think in a very real way, forgeries testify that there is the true, the real. So Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. They look like Christians. They will claim to be Christians. They will claim they're on the same team, but they are not. They are wolves. A crucial part of ministry for the faithful pastor and church leader is to watch and warn the flock. Paul modeled that for us. He's now in prison, and no doubt the false teachers in Colossae, would, they would point to this as evidence that God wasn't blessing Paul. God is uh, not showing his favor to Paul. Look, he's languishing in prison. They would try to discredit him uh, via his circumstances. But look at what Paul does. I'm going to give us four words that sort of capture the heart of our five verses this morning. Four words. The first one is suffering. Suffering. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So Paul, rather than thinking he's somehow uh, fallen out of God's favor, 
you know, because he's in prison. Man, if I just had enough faith, I'd be out of prison. No, he wasn't thinking that way at all. He's saying him being in prison is evidence of God's favor. It's evidence that he's in the center of God's will. Paul was rejoicing while he was in prison because he saw it as the will of God. Now, this is a, a massive insight into what maturity looks like in the Christian life. Paul, in Ephesians 1, said, I, Paul, and this is a prison epistle. He's in prison when he writes it. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. Says it again, Philemon 1.1, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul, in his heart and mind, he's a prisoner of Jesus. He's in jail for Jesus. The suffering that he's going through is for Jesus. It's not because God's mad at him. That's such a superficial, superficial thought. Paul's gospel was not a prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a perversion of the true gospel. It's a folex kind of gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that all Christians have the right to health and wealth and security and all the rest. That these blessings are accessed uh, by a, a self-generated faith. And, and, and it's not biblical faith. It's more of a faith in faith. If I can just conjure up enough faith power in my heart and mind, then that faith power will bring to me the health and the wealth that are promised me by God. This perversion of the gospel is pervasive. It's everywhere. It's very popular. There's not a lot of room for suffering. You're not going to find a lot of messages on suffering in prosperity gospel kinds of churches the Joel Olsteiny kinds of churches. Conversely, suffering plays a central role in the true gospel. Let me give you, for instance, Philippians 1.29. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. What does that mean, granted? I looked up the word, kerizomai, uh, in the Greek. It means benevolent gift, granting a favor. You've been given a gift, this favor. God's done you a favor. He's blessed you with the favor of suffering, this gift of suffering. Prosperity gospel preachers tell you that suffering is the result of your lack of faith. The true gospel tells you that suffering is a gift given to you by Jesus. Suffering serves us. 
It purifies us. It matures us like nothing else can. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it. We should expect it. First Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. Obviously, if something surprises you, you weren't expecting it, right? To, to put it in the positive, we should expect trials. We should expect suffering. This is coming from Peter, who once told his Lord Jesus to avoid the cross at all costs. You remember that? Paul's like, no way, not going to happen. Peter thought it very strange that Jesus was expecting suffering and death. Now Peter doesn't think it's strange. Suffering and testing are, are two sides of the same coin in Scripture. Uh, Proverbs 17.3, for instance, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. Testing, not, you know, not pass-fail, but the testing, like when, when gold uh, or pre precious metal is assayed and tested, it's purified. Isaiah 48.10, behold, I've refined you, not as silver, I've tried you, tested you, in the furnace of affliction, in the furnace of suffering. That's where I've purified you. That's where it happens. This truth has, I mean, just huge implications. It's so practical. It's the difference between maturity and immaturity in the Christian life. I'm not overstating that. You see, yes, Satan may be attacking you. And yes, some stupid choices may have caused some... All of, I mean, that can all be true, okay? But though Satan may be attacking you, God is testing you. It's God who's at work in you. Though your business may be failing, God is testing. Though your marriage may be struggling, God, he is purifying you. He is. Though your child may be rebelling or your health declining or your wealth diminishing or your loved one dying or whatever it is, God is testing. He's refining Who was it that attacked Job, destroying his wealth and killing all of his children? Anybody? That would be Satan, right? It was Satan who came into the presence of God and said, hey, you've got a protection around him. And so, you know, God bragged on Job and, and all of that. And God said, okay, you're saying you can't get to him. I'll take the protection away. And Satan inflicted all of this pain and misery. Misery. And yet, what did Job say? Job 23.10, God knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, tested me, I shall come out as gold. So, so God is, he's over my life. He's, he's gone before me on the path of life. And so, so I trust in him. In other words, though Satan attacked me, God is testing me. 
Job didn't say the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Even though Satan did take it away, Job's view of God was that God was sovereign, omnipotent, doing as he pleased. Therefore, Satan serves God, ultimately. That was Luther's kind of bold statement back in the Reformation. Satan, or rather the devil, is God's devil. Therefore, not just the good things, the easy things, the, the increase and the blessing stuff, and, and most of God's people enjoy plenty of the good, but the hard things are from God too. Not just the good, not just the increase, the loss, the pain, the suffering is also from God. Job expressed this to his wife, who is encouraging Job to curse God and die. <laughs> Counseling was not her gift. Job 2.10, Job says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The, the prosperity gospel, it promotes the idea of God being behind everything that's good and positive and successful and, and uh, all of that, happy. But he's not involved with anything that's bad and hard and negative and painful. Not involved in suffering. That comes from the devil and God doesn't want that. And so your faith is what is going to get you out of it and into the place of victory. If that's your theology, listen, you, it is twisted. It is screwed up. And, and you're, you're believing in a very wimpy God. Lastly, on, on this, we've got to move on here, but Paul equated, and this man, I have not even thunk this through fully, but Paul equated his sufferings to being Jesus's sufferings. Did you catch that? Did that maybe hit you um, as it was read this morning, verse 24, second part? I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. So, so right away, probably flags go, wait a minute, Christ's afflictions are lacking? I thought he paid it all. I thought he said it is finished on the cross. On the, obviously, Paul is not talking about Jesus' atoning sacrifice. He's talking about the sufferings of Jesus in general that would continue now through the body of Jesus, the church. Do you remember Paul's prayer in Philippians 3, verse 10? He says, this is my cry, my prayer, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. His 
sufferings. I want to share in them. I want to experience them, becoming like him in his death. Listen, when we suffer in a very real way, Jesus suffers too. We are his body. He is the head of the body. Before Paul got saved, he was Saul, the persecutor of Christians, the one who was trying to stamp out the church, right? And he inflicted a lot of pain upon God's people. I mean, he took moms and dads and threw them in prison. He uh, commissioned the, the capital punishment of Christians, but when Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The pain that those Christians were going through was felt by Jesus. And in this way, Christians are filling up the afflictions of Jesus, the suffering that you go through, you're not suffering for nothing, but you are, you are in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. Suffering is a gift of grace that makes us more like Jesus. Well, the second word, the second word, first one is suffering. The second word is presence, presence. Verse 25, look at the second half of it there, or last part of it. Paul says, to make the word of God fully known, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. God became a man and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, right? That's the story of Christmas. But he came as a means to an end. What is that end? God was with us so that God could be in us. We who have been around Christianity for a while, walking with the Lord perhaps for years or decades, we can get, get a little bit take this idea for granted, I think. But this, this truth, this, this truth is, it's just, it's radical. Paul calls it a mystery. I need to explain that maybe here. When, when the Bible talks about mystery, mysterion, it doesn't, it's not talking about something that's unknowable, but it means something that was previously hidden that's now revealed and understood. So, so, so uh, you know, I use this illustration a lot to illustrate this, but moms and dads, when you have little kids, maybe some of you do now or you did years ago, but when you kiss your kids, they look at you and they'll probably say something like, ew, yucky, but they keep looking at you. <laughs> they can't take their eyes off of you. Because they're like, what is it about kissing? 
There's something glorious there. I just know it. And one day, the mystery will be revealed to them, right? They, they saw it, but the, the glory of the mystery was hidden because they haven't experienced that romantic kind of kiss. Well, this is the same idea in the, the Bible of a biblical mystery, something that was talked about and prophesied, but was unable to be fully understood until the veil was lifted spiritually. And, and this is the, the case in this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory to a church that was being told that the keys to holiness and godliness and spirituality were Old Testament rituals and ceremonies, angelic visions and visitations, harsh treatment of the body. Paul says, no, it's Christ in you. Don't miss this radical truth about what it means to be a Christian. It's Jesus in you. It's the key to everything. If you think you're missing something in the Christian life, I wrote in my email, a lot of people over the years, they just feel like, man, I'm missing something. Something's missing in my life. And they're searching for this missing thing. Listen, you're not, if Jesus is in you, and we'll see this in the next chapter, that if you have Christ you have it all. You are complete in him. Perfect. So you're, you're looking in the wrong place. That's the issue. First Timothy 3.16 says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Or we might say the mystery of Christ-likeness, spirituality, maturity, understanding. And he goes on. Jesus was, God was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, then taken up into glory. And Paul pens that in the context of what qualifies a person to be a leader in the church. You can go back, read that chapter. And it's like, here's, you need to have your house in order and you need to be a person of a, you know, uh, uh, you have to have patience and integrity and leaders aren't to be drunkards and have short fuses or be covetous and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and listen, you may say, uh, when it comes to the house being in order uh, and, and my kids being in subjection, I fall way short. My marriage is struggling. My kids are out of control. Uh, or you may say when it comes to patience, I don't seem to have any. I wish the Lord would hurry up and give me some patience. You know, that kind of thing. You're just like, ah, I want to be better. But I can't seem to grow and and gain in these areas. It's a mystery to me. I want to be godly. I want to walk in holiness. 
and godliness and have maturity in my life, but I can't seem to escape from my hang-ups and my problems and my personality quirks. And, and so it's a mystery to me how I can ever be the man, the woman of God that I know that he's calling me to be. How do I get there? Paul says to you, and no argument there. It's a mystery. There's a mystery to it. Great is the mystery of godliness. The word translated great, it's the Greek word mega. I mean, it's, it's, a big, it's a big mystery. And then Paul goes from there and says, God was manifest in the flesh. Many people want a book that says seven steps to greater spirituality. Five steps to unlocking blessing in your marriage, or, or, or. I mean, give me a, a, some book, some manual that's gonna give me the steps and the how-tos. But Paul talks about the presence of God. And this is the key. When you understand it, believe it, and start leaning into it, it's awesome, it's glorious, it's liberating. God was not only manifest in the flesh when Jesus came to the earth, God is manifest in our flesh when we yield to the Spirit on any given day, in any given moment. At any moment of any day, you can yield to the Spirit of God and see the holiness of Jesus coming through. You can see a crummy, grumpy attitude overcome with gratitude and joy. You can, you can see all kinds of personality problems all of a sudden subsumed by the power of God, his presence in your body coming through now in your words and in your attitudes. It's the new covenant. The only one who can truly live the Christian life <laughs> is Jesus in us. So the key to living the Christian life is not imitation so much as it is incarnation, Christ in us. Well, I, I got one minute for each of the last two words. <laughs> So that's all right. Mike, head usher Mike this morning prayed for me that God would give me the wisdom to know when to stop preaching. So, <laughs> so word number one, suffering. Word number two, presence. Number three, teaching. And this really kind of connects with number one. But verse 28, him, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone 
and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Do you realize the importance of teaching the, of the scriptures? Listen, we, we, if, if this is all you get, and it's vital, um, I argue that there's, there's nothing that can replace the gathering uh, together of God's people to worship Jesus physically in the room, that, the, that doing the online thing, that is not church. Okay, this is church. And there's a, there's a power here and a presence here that does not happen in any other place. And so, but if this, if this 40 minutes or so of Bible teaching is all you get, it's not enough. It's not enough. You've got to learn to discipline yourself to intake more of God's word, more of the teaching of the Bible. And man, if you'll do that, you'll find yourself discerning more because the Bible is full of warnings about false teachers and false teaching. And your discernment will get sharpened and you'll be able to recognize, man, that, that, that's not true. Like there's some bogus about what that guy's saying. And it's not right. And all of a sudden, you'll start to see things clearly. And you'll begin to mature in Christ. And, and, and you'll become more and more solid and stable. And not just blown back and forth by every wind of doctrine that comes blowing through. You'll be a solid, stable pillar in your local church. And a pillar in the lives of the people that are in your circle of influence. And notice the teaching centers on Jesus, him we proclaim. Our series is the supremacy of Christ. And it's only going to get more intense as we go. It's really all about Jesus, gang. It really is. Last one, last word is effort. And uh, effort. So I love how this chapter wraps up. Verse 29, Paul says, okay, for this I tell. Again, he's in the Roman prison. He's suffering. He's rejoicing in the suffering. He's revealing this incredible truth. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Isn't that, that, this is such a great marriage of how life works in the Lord. I toil, I struggle, I give forth effort, man, in serving the Lord, in reaching the world with the gospel. I'm putting, I'm struggling, I'm working hard to get this done. But I'm doing it with his energy that he gives me. Wow. This is not the only time Paul says something like that, where, where you're going, it's my effort, it's my putting forth, I'm sweating, I'm working hard. But it's God. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? 
Work it out. It's, it's, you're talking about something that's worked in, like, like precious minerals in a mine. Work it out. Dig, sweat, labor. Get in ministry, man. Roll your sleeves up. Work hard. Show up. Get it done. Why? Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're working and sweating and laboring and showing up and doing what you can for the glory of our God, for the sake of his gospel, to see the church built and so on. And God is underneath all of your doing, every bit of it. He's at work in you as you're at work for him. That's the way it works in the Christian life. Are you suffering, Christian? Learn how to suffer well. Rejoice. It's actually a gift that's been given to you. We're, we're living in a culture that is so whiny. Oh. I mean, even Harry and Meghan are victims. <laughs> and they whine incessantly how bad they have it. Don't, don't, even though you may have been victimized, don't take a victim mentality on. Don't do it. It's toxic, it's poisonous, it's, it's ugly, it's not lovely at all. It just isn't. Rejoice in your sufferings. Praise God in it. Grow deeper in Christ as you suffer. Let's pray. Lord, false teaching is, uh, boy, is, is prevalent. It's everywhere. And so we need to be like the Berean Christians who even though Paul wrote them some things, told them some things, they they checked out what Paul said against the scripture that they had. And just like the people of our church should, should check out what's being taught from the pulpit, should learn how to be Bereans in that way. And how easy it is to fall prey when our desire is for holiness and godliness and greater understanding and spirituality and all the rest. And, and somebody comes along and says, well, hey, I've got a secret. I've got a, I've got a path for you that not everybody knows about. But if you'll do this, if you go, do these rituals, or if you get involved in it, then you're going you're gonna to go to the deeper places. Man, the spiritual realm is just teeming with angels that are, that are ready to give new revelations into the eternal realm. And if you just open yourself up to spiritual experience, you will receive insight 
or if you just are hard on your body and refuse to give it comfort and so on, and, and you, you inflict suffering upon yourself and in order to press into greater breakthrough and revelation, and, and all of this stuff that, that people will say will bring you closer to God, and all the while, Christ is in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, Lord, may this knowledge uh, transform the way that we suffer. Lord, I think of the, the Canadian pastor who was ripped from his home a couple of days ago simply because he protested a drag queen story hour and not wanting to see children exposed to this. And they came to his home and they took him to prison where he is currently, Lord. And pray that you would give him the ability to rejoice in prison right now, like Paul did. Or the man in our own country who simply praying at an abortion clinic his heart burdened for babies that were being killed, the young mothers that were going through this terrible circumstance. And he was ripped away from his home as his many children and his wife watched. Tons of FBI agents with their guns and armor taking their daddy away. Lord, give him joy in prison. Lord, give us all joy in whatever suffering we are in currently. And help us to not think it's strange, but rather as a central part of the Christian life. And one day, Suffering is going to give way to glory and joy, and our joy is going to be full. So, um, Lord, help us to suffer well. Lord, would you meet us at the table where we are confronted with your suffering? And, um, Lord, if we have some things to confess this morning, sins we've committed, uh, attitudes, that are less than honoring to you, then help us to confess them. Search us, test us, see if there's any wicked way in us, and then lead us in the everlasting way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are invited to go ahead and get up and make your way to a communion table.
And so if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is a meal that's for you. And, and if not, as you consider that, um, this meal isn't for you. It's something that wouldn't uh, be of any benefit for you. But if that's something that, as you've sat here at, in the congregation today and, and you believe that Jesus did die for you, that your sins are washed away, then this meal is for you. And so as the, the others are gathering, and if you've believed for the first time, you can go ahead and join us as we, as we prepare to take this meal together. This meal is described in a couple of different places in Scripture, and it gives us um, instruction to, to look within ourselves, as Greg had just mentioned, to, to, to have the Lord meet us here with this meal and see if there's, as we sung earlier, if there's any wicked way in us, anything that we need to confess to the Lord. And, and it also instructs us to look around in, in, the, in the congregation and in, in the body of Christ and see where we've been planted and what that need is that we can fulfill. And as we'll learn here in a second, it, it asks us to look forward to, to the Lord's return when he'll have the same meal with us. And so we've, we see in scripture here as he instituted the Lord's Supper, he gathered his disciples in that upper room and, and as scripture says, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And so we'll do the same. Father, thank you for the blessing of Jesus on the cross. And we just pray a blessing over this bread as we partake it to remember his suffering for us. And so as we partake, we, we praise you in Jesus' name. Let's partake. The scripture continues, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so Jesus, we look forward to that meeting with you in the new kingdom where we partake of this again. Until then, bless this drink as we as we partake in Jesus' name. Let's partake. 